Now, verse 11, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Verse 11, after describing how people plunge themselves into ruin and destruction in the love of money, verse 11, and he says, but flee from these things. Flee from these things. Everything he's been saying in the preceding section, flee from these things. This should not characterize the Christian. It should not characterize the, the pastor, the minister of God. He says, you man of God. Not only should it not characterize us, we ought to flee from them. Don't hang around them. Don't play with it. Don't meddle with it a little here, a little there. Don't say that we can mix and match. It's not as though you're going to the store with a big sale. You can't mix and match whatever you want to buy and throw it into the basket. That's not the way it works. The Christian life does not work that way. We have to flee from it. Run in the opposite direction. Run. Run for your life because it's a matter of life and death. He calls him a man of God. He's not for himself. He is for God. He represents God. He has a higher calling. He has the name of God on him. He represents God and he ought to reflect God. God is his authority. God is his superior. He ought to honor him and live for him. He has to follow God himself as the man of God. He reminds him of this fact. He's not living for himself and he's not living for others. He's living for God. And therefore, what on the contrary should he pursue? He should pursue righteousness. Not wickedness, but righteousness. That which is in accord with the law of God. That which is con in conformity to the word of God. That is what righteousness is. Wickedness is transgression of the law. Righteousness is following that which is right and just and, and pure according to the law of God. Godliness, godliness is a conformity of our life, our values, our behavior in conformity to God as manifested most perfectly in the person of Christ. That's how we know what godliness is. As Christ behaved, that's how we ought to behave. 
as he spoke and as he conducted his life, that's how we ought to conduct our life. That is what true godliness is. What ungodliness is, is anything that contradicts that. Ungodliness is following Satan, the devil. But godliness is following Christ. And having our values and our mind and our whole lifestyle conformed to the life of Christ. It's a life also of faith. Pursue faith. Faith is necessary for the whole of the Christian life. As we know from Romans 14.23, whatever is not from faith is sin. That's why faith is so important. Everything we have and do ought to be with faith as its foundation. Hebrews 11 verse 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Hebrews 11 verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith is necessary for the Christian life. Have faith in God. Not unbelief, not, not doubts, not double-mindedness, but wholehearted, sincere, full faith in God. In the Word of God and living for God. Love is also here. Pursue love. Pursue the love of God and pursue love of one another. As the Bible expects us to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves, or love the brethren, as the Bible expects us to do that, that's what we ought to pursue. We ought to be characterized by this love of God and love of neighbor. Perseverance. Perseverance, endurance. Maintaining steadfastness in our faith. There will be afflictions. Hardships will come. Either they will come through accidents and natural circumstances, or they'll come from disease, they'll come from, from natural calamities. Perseverance and afflictions are necessary. They will come. They will come that way. But they also might come because of persecutions. And we ought to endure persecution from those who name the name of Christ but really don't belong to Christ, or those on the outside in the world who persecute the people of God because they hate what we stand for and they hate the God we serve. Yet perseverance is necessary. We should not be disheartened. We should not be demoralized and say, I'm going to compromise or just give up the faith altogether. Persevere. Persevere until the end. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. And then gentleness. Gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Gentleness, those who are the gentle, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth, Jesus said. Gentleness characterizes the Christian. Uh, not, not bitterness and haughtiness and contention. This is not what characterizes the Christian, but gentleness does. The way that he treats one, uh, his, his loved ones, his family members, the way that he treats others, those in the church, there ought to be gentleness that's characteristic of him. This is necessary also for the man of God to be an example and to teach the people of God to do the same. Verse 12. He continues with an exhortation using the imagery of battle or warfare. Verse 12. 
Fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Fighting is necessary, not in the sense of being contentious, not in the sense of being an agitator and an aggravator and a divisive kind of person, but fighting to uphold the faith. Even though it is presented and there is onslaught, we should not retreat. We ought to uphold it and fight it because it's a good fight. It's not good to withdraw and retreat whenever there's onslaught from the enemy. Whenever the onslaught is there, we ought to muster up courage. We ought to rally the other troops. We ought to pray. We ought to put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6. We ought to do these kinds of things in order to maintain this fight. We have to consider the Christian life a life of warfare. Notice in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 3. He says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. We are to suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus and not be entangled in the affairs of everyday life. No soldier does that. No good soldier does that. He doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life. He is there to please his enlistment officer. He's there to please his commanders and everyone who's above him. He's there to do his duties carefully, meticulously. He's there to fulfill that so that he can serve his country, serve his countrymen in the proper way. That's the way the Christian life is. There's warfare. Your enemy... Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. That, that's why we are supposed to fight. Because we have somebody out there, the devil, who's an agitator. He uses the world. He uses the flesh. He uses our enemies against us to fight against us. And we have to withstand. We have to fight back. It's a good fight. This is what people do not see. Both pastors and people generally do not understand that the Christian life is a life of warfare, a daily fight for the good fight of faith, the true faith, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He also says in 12, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of it. Don't let go of it. Grasp it. Seize it. Hold on to it. Hold on. <clears throat> Be diligent. This eternal life. Eternal life. We're not talking about, though it is a good thing to serve one's countrymen as a soldier, we're talking about eternal life. We're supposed to take hold of eternal life, that which is forever and ever. We're not talking about something temporary. We're talking about eternal things. Why not? Because it has to do with eternal things and the eternal destiny of the souls of the people we encounter. Believers and unbelievers, or professing believers and unbelievers. We're dealing with the souls of men. They'll either go to heaven or to hell. So we ought to take hold of this eternal life. Don't let it go. We have something precious and sweet, rare, that others don't have. Lord, are there many, or are there just a few being saved? And Jesus answered, enter by the narrow gate. Yes, there are a few 
compared to the rest who are being saved. So take hold of this eternal life, be grateful for it, and then tell others about it. To which you were called. This calling ca happened from God. 2 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, he says, Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. He called us with this holy calling that set us apart and saved us from our sins by His grace, by His purpose, by His elective grace, His elective and holy calling. He called us out. If He did this for us, we ought to respond to that calling. We ought to respond to the calling as He says in verse 12, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He was, and he did, confess the good confession. He did confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He did say that he was rejecting the world. He did say he wanted to live for God. And he said it in front of many witnesses. Well, then fulfill your confession. If you said so, are you an unreliable man? Are you untrustworthy? Don't you keep your word? Keep that good confession. Keep it until the very end. Take hold of this eternal life. Endure until the very end. Fulfill your calling. You were called to be saved and to be sanctified and to glorify God. Well, then do that. Finish it up. You did it in the presence of many witnesses. Many people saw what you confessed. Therefore, based on the, this testimony that you confessed, you better live up to it. The witnesses are still watching. The witnesses will be jeopardized if you give up, if you are wayward, if you are plunged into ruin and destruction, it will happen to them too. You may lead them. You may drag them into the same ruin that you're pursuing. So don't do that. You have many witnesses. And then 13, he's still exhorting him. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He charges him. This is a sober reality that he has to consider. It's a charge. And it's in the sight of God. God Himself, who gives life to all things. God is the source of life. So no, no worries, no fear. Don't worry about death. Don't worry about how you might die. And don't worry about whether you're going to survive and live. Don't be anxious about it. God is the one who gives life to all things. He will sustain you. He will provide for His own. Always and until the very end. He will do so. And even Christ Himself. Christ Himself is our mediator. He is the one who will hear us. And He is the one who intercedes on our behalf. He is there. And He charges Timothy in the presence of Christ. Christ who is our forerunner. Who can understand. Who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. It's in the presence of Christ. And notice, Christ is the one who confessed or testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Christ endured until the very end. Christ was about to be executed on the cross. He was persecuted throughout his life, especially during his ministry. He was persecuted and people maligned him. They slandered him. They threatened to kill him. And then they tortured him before he was crucified. And now he's standing before Pontius Pilate. 
Christ did not give up the faith. He did not wander away from the faith. He fought the good fight until the very end. And he confessed, even in the face of his executioner, who had the authority to say the word and put him to death. He confessed and endured until the very end. If he did so, and we are his followers, we ought to do so. As well, verse 14, he says that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep the commandment. By the commandment, he's not speaking of just any one commandment, but he summarizes with this collective noun. It's a collective noun signifying the fact that all the words, all the sound words, all the doctrines, all the teachings, every word of God, he says, is a commandment that should be kept, obeyed. He who loves me keeps my commandment. John 14, 15. We ought to keep his commandments and keep them without stain or reproach. Keep them faithfully, without compromise. Don't let there be any stain or any reproach. Let's be faithful in keeping his commandments. And for how long? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until he appears. From the time of our conversion until the time that we see Christ face to face. Notice 1 John 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. We ought to abide in him and have confidence, not shrink away from him, Christ, in shame at his coming. Chapter 3, chapter 3 and verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. We are to live righteously and live as the children of God. And yes, the world will not know us because they don't know Him. They will oppose us. But meantime, we ought to await His appearance. And while we await His appearance, when we do anticipate His appearance, we'll be like Him. We'll, we will be completely freed from pain, sorrow, tears, and death. We will see Him just as He is, immortal, perfect, glorified, forever. And that hope, that anticipation, verse 3, 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is the same that Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 6. He's saying that we ought to keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when will this happen? Verse 15, Which He, the Father, will bring about at the proper time, He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
The Father will bring about this in the proper time, in due time. Whenever God has ordained for it to happen, it will happen. So we have to have faith in that fact. Even though it doesn't happen quickly in our estimation, it will happen in due time according to God's estimation. It will happen. So we need to have this faith and hope in that which is unseen. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11.1. 1. The conviction of things not seen. We don't see it, but we have faith in it. We have hope in it. We all should be called hopeful people. Okay? Hopeful because we know in due time, in the proper time, God will bring it about. God is the blessed and only sovereign. He's the blessed and only sovereign. Put our hope in Him. He's the only sovereign. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, there are many kings and lords of the earth, and there are many sovereigns of the earth, but the ultimate, superior, almighty is God Himself. He's the only one. We ought to put our hope and trust in Him, not in the others of the earth, and not to fear the others of the earth. 16 says about God, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. God is this way. He alone possesses immortality, and then He grants it to His people. That point is implied here. God alone possesses immortality. There's no need to be anxious about the people and the kings of the world, the potentates of the world. They don't deserve the kind of attention and glory that God does. So don't worry about them, whatever they may, may do. Don't worry about what people will do. God alone possesses immortality. He possesses it, and then He grants it to His people. So put our hope in Him who alone possesses this. No one can see it, has seen it, or can see it. Again, he's elevating God and showing how superior and exalted God is. God is this way, and we ought to put our hope in him. Eventually, as it said in 1 John 3, we will see Christ. But right now, we are not at the point of being worthy enough to see Christ. We have to undergo this affliction and purification while we're on the earth. There is no purgatory afterlife, but there is, in a sense, a purgatory now. As 1 John 3, 3 says, He who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And we know when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. So, in that sense... We will participate in immortality. We will have a resurrected, glorified body, no longer susceptible to pain, sorrow, sin, evil, death. No more susceptible to that. It will be immortal. And then we will see Him. We will be with Him and near Him forever. And for this, this is the kind of hope that we should have. And this is, is the reaction we should have. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the honor, the praise, and the power belong to God. And it's an eternal dominion. It's an eternal kingdom. Eternal. Not temporary, but eternal. This is what God has. Why would we not, why should we not do the same and say amen to that? Don't worry. Consider our life 
of no account. It's worthless and useless. We, our, our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. There's no hope in this world. The hope is in the world to come. And when we think about it, it ought to cause us to, to say, to Him be honor and glory, eternal dominion forever. He will reign forever and He will grant to us to participate in that eternal reign. Verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He has to reiterate, because this is a sore temptation, he has to reiterate this fact that the, those who are rich in this present world ought not to be conceited, well, I'm rich because I'm, there's something good in me. I'm rich because God has something favorable towards me that He doesn't have not showed to other people. Therefore, I'm better than others. So we can become conceited that way. And we might also fix our hope on the uncertainty of riches. But it, it, isn't it Jesus who said that we ought not to fix our uncertainty in riches, but on God? He said that in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. <clears throat> Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's the, the exhortation of Paul, First Timothy 6.17. Don't put our hope on, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Our hope must be on God. And why does God give us riches? He tells us. Why do riches exist? They exist for the following reasons. Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He richly supplies us with, all, with these things so that we might enjoy them. Enjoy them in the proper context. Not in terms of indulgence, whether it's drunkenness, gluttony, and other things, lavishness. It's not for that reason, but in gratitude. Notice 1 Timothy 4. He's already addressed this. 1 Timothy 4, he, he speaks of the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, and then he describes who these people are in verse 3. 1 Timothy 4, 3. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. If we are pursuing all these things God has given us to enjoy by means of the word of God and prayer, and by means of gra gratefulness and gratitude, if we're doing it by those means, with that in mind, with those or by those who believe and know the truth, if we're doing it associated with all of this, we're not going to be indulgent. We're not going to be drunks. We're not going to be gluttons. We're not going to live that way. 
we're not going to be lavish. We're going to enjoy them in their proper context. Verse 18. Also, he says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. To, be, to do good and to be rich in good works. Do good and be rich in good works. He said that about the widows in 1 Timothy 5.10, that they should devote themselves to every good work. And then he says, generally speaking, of all of us, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The man of God may, may, may be adequate and equipped for every good work by the scriptures. So, doing good works, to be rich in good works, it's expected of all of us. And especially here, he's, he's focused on the rich, that they ought to do so. And then to be generous and ready to share. When the rich are generous and ready to share, they show by that that they are not clinging on to their riches, that they're not holding on to their riches, that they actually are not indulgent with their own lavishness and with their own uh, appetites. They're not that way, but they're ready to help others, to be generous and ready to share. This should characterize the rich, those who are truly helping others in this way. And, and verse 19, they store up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. They're storing up for themselves a treasure for the future, a good foundation for the future. This is what Jesus meant. For where, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where the moths and the thieves don't harm any of those treasures. Those kinds of treasures are the treasures we should seek. Eternal ones, heavenly ones. Finally, verses 20 to 21. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. He's supposed to guard it. He's supposed to guard it. That, that implies that he is a soldier or at least a security officer of some sort that he's supposed to guard it, protect it. Don't let any harm come to it. Again, this is uh, militaristic terminology as he used in verse 12, 1 Timothy 6.12. This is the way the Christian life is. It's supposed to be protected because it's eternal life. We're talking about matters of life and death. Therefore, they must be guarded. What has been entrusted to you? Well, what has been entrusted? We learn from 2 Timothy 2. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Verse 13, Retain the, the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And also 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
Verse 11, he says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We are entrusted with the gospel, and it is the gospel that we must guard. We are entrusted with the gospel. It's the only source of eternal life. So why shouldn't we guard the gospel that we now embrace, that we, we take hold of? We ought to keep it, maintain it. We are entrusted with it. God has given it to us as a trust. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? Who can find a trustworthy man? They're rare. Rare adherence to the gospel. That's what he's describing here. And Timothy must guard it because it's the only source of life so that he and others may be saved. And so that's on the positive side. But on the negative side, he says, avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. However, other people, contrarians, they are seeking to confuse people with worldly and empty chatter, opposing arguments, falsely called knowledge. We spoke earlier of how they misuse the word knowledge. Let's, let's see an example of what misuse we have of this word knowledge. And we'll look at one or two other examples. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Verse 8 also, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Here, they, they are not understanding Christ properly, they use this word knowledge, but it's not a true knowledge. He implies that their use of the word is a false use because he says in verse 2, they don't have this true knowledge of God in Christ. And they use philosophy, traditions of men, empty deception. They captivate people. This is what happens. They, they will use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning, and they'll use common words with an uncommon meaning. It's bait and switch. They will use biblical words to disarm you, but they don't mean it the way the Bible means it. And they'll even use common words without the common meaning. This is what people do, false teachers do. So don't pursue the same. And one more place is 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, the Corinthians... had been listening to 
falsehood. It says in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 11 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, whom you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You bear this beautifully means you tolerate it, you put up with it. You don't understand that people say Jesus, but they have another Jesus. They say spirit, but they have a different spirit. They say gospel, but they actually have a different gospel. Verse 13. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. <clears throat> Satan and his messengers behave like this. When they use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning, they are following the devil. And he says, those who do so, they have gone astray from the faith. 1 Timothy 6.21 They have gone astray from the faith. They're not really pursuing the true faith. Therefore, beware. And don't let that happen to you. 1 Timothy 4.16 Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Yes, when people distort the Bible's meanings on words, they are leading people away from the faith and it is, it is a matter of salvation. Because he says... To Timothy, he ought to pay attention to himself, that is his life, and to his teaching, what he's teaching and preaching to others. He should persevere in this to ensure his salvation and for the ones who hear. It's a matter of life and death. Don't let people play with words. And all this, all that he's been writing, depends on grace. That's why he ends it. Grace be with you. The grace that saves us from our sins is also the grace that sanctifies us from our sins. We are saved by grace. He says that in 2 Timothy 1.9. But according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Grace that makes dead people alive, that has, uh, causes a transformation of stony hearts to tender hearts, that grace that does that and produces faith and repentance in us is also grace that is our power, our source. The Spirit of grace gives us the ability to carry out these words, these commandments, these things that we've been reading and, and hearing. Grace is that which we need to sustain us, to work mightily in us. So we ought to pray for it. We ought to depend on it. We ought to say, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. That's what we should say, uh, Zechariah 4.6. We ought to say that it depends on God working in me, and I will plead with Him, and I will ask Him, I will ask Him for insight, and I will be empowered with His help 
to carry out his will. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.